how it tricks. All right, yeah. Um, the lockdown here ends in officially two hours and 23 minutes. Really? I thought it's barely even been gone, right? <clears throat> three weeks. Actually, more than three weeks. Uh, 22 days. It would have been. I did read that Vietnam have somehow handled it very well. I don't know. Vietnam have done... They've done, they've done all their trace, uh, what's it called? Trace and contact. So they've, they've tracked down every single person. They had 50,000 people in quarantine at one point, mm -hmm. which is unbelievable. Um, although 30,000 of them were quarantined at home. Um, but they, yet they were still something like the ninth best in Asia, I read in some article. So I think Asia generally has done pretty well, but they've obviously had the experience from SARS like oh, in 2003, yeah. they, they went crazy over it. Um, and we didn't really learn from that in the UK and in the US. So no. we might, in 20 years' time, be in a similar situation to the, to the East. Yeah, I mean, God knows what the landscape would look like at that point, to be fair. Like, if, if 20, 20 years' time, what they, they expect 10 billion by 2050 or something in population, was it more than that? Peak, peak population, yeah, going to hit 10 billion. Yeah. So chances of this happening again, even before that, are quite, quite strong. It's yeah, well, this is it. Like, um, if you look back in history, there was a couple of, there was the Hong Kong flu in something like 1967, which was the last big, big one. Um, and then there was some, there was another one in like the, the 50s. But obviously none of them were as big as the Spanish flu, Spanish flu possibly started in France. Um, but the population's gone up so much, yeah. And the amount of wildlife being killed and eaten in China and being taken from the wild, it's surely it's an exponential curve of the, of the amount of risk every year. It's just going up and up and up and up. And so if it's been, if it was 1918 and there was some in the 50s and 60s, let's say there's 50 years, and then we've had another 50 years and we've had a big one, Although, you know, it might not end up being that big. It's, it's certainly not going to be as big as Spanish flu. Um, you, maybe you would expect now that we've got like 20 years and we could well see another big one. Unless big changes are made in, in terms of uh, the way we interact with wildlife. Yeah, and also just the, the way, I guess, taking it seriously. That seems to be the, the way that the US and the UK have fucked it. We just didn't seem to jump on it, you know? Yeah, but then equally, there's also the argument. When you look at the number of people who were killed and you look at the statistics, if you, if you talk about this at all, you risk getting shouted down like some kind of... Yeah, thing. I know what you're going to say. But actually, if you look at the figures, it's something like... 95% of the people who have died, statistically, again, it's a, a bit of a generalization, but we, we follow statistics for a reason. 95% of those people would have been dead within a year anyway. And yet, the damage done to, and I don't like this idea of pitting younger people against older people, because we've got a lot of that going on at the minute, but the damage done um, in terms of education, uh, domestic violence increased, suicides will be up, no doubt. Um, divorces, the talk is that divorces are, are going to increase massively. Yeah. 
you've got to ask yourself, it, and it's difficult to wait up at the time, but you've got to ask yourself to what extent is the risk being balanced proportionally, especially when you look at Sweden. So if you follow the, this would be good, by the way, if we could get the graphs up on this, if we were doing it properly. Um, if you follow the curve of Sweden, actually they're slightly below us, but they're basically following the same curve and they've got the same number of uh, deaths per 100,000 as we have. And yet there's been no lockdown. Mm. So someone's going to look back on this in, I don't know, a year or two years and look at all these figures and start to question to what extent this lockdown was necessary or useful. I, I was thinking this the other day. I think part of the whole lockdown thing is it's like if you're given this decision, um, say if you're a country that's not as like prominent in everything like this. So like, I don't know, Cyprus, right? Small place. Very offensive to Cyprus. Yeah, but like compared to the rest of the EU and stuff, they're just not, you know, they're not up there with, with everything. But so say if Cyprus, just every, everybody around them's in lockdown, right? Italy's, Italy's gone bad, Spain. And if they don't do it, then they're seen as being reckless almost. It's just the Swedish somehow, because everyone knows that the Swedish seem to handle everything fine. But it, it's, it's almost like if you don't follow the trend, you're going to be hauled in front of people if it goes the wrong way. You'd like either yeah. your safer choice is to lock down. Um, but it might not be the, it might not actually be the best choice. And I did, it, I was reading last night about, um, don't know if it was Sweden and Holland or Sweden and Denmark, or maybe even Norway and Denmark, but two, two Scandi countries or Holland, um, they, they, they estimate that it's like a dozen times more people actually have it. Um, it's just so many people have the antibodies there who have fought it off, but it's, they were asymptomatic. Yeah. They've already been doing tests and found that 12 times the amount of people have had the antibodies to have fought it off already. So it has hit their body, but it's just fought it off. Um, Mm. which kind of then when you think about it, if you, if you looked at, you can then kind of look at the numbers and be like, if we've got 10,000, I think we're up to 16,000 in this country dead. 16,000 in this country dead out of, I can't remember the actual figure for the amount of people that have got it. Well, you can times that people who've got it by 12, then you might be looking at a case of like 16,000 dead for every 20 million who are getting it or something, you know? Yeah. It just doesn't, then then the numbers, the, the, the deaths to actually have had contact with coronavirus, they're so, such a large gap. Yeah, and then if you think about that, then you've got to start looking at this idea of different peaks. So we're on peak number one. And like a, fr- a friend of mine used the term, we're going to be lambs to the slaughter, basically, come peak two. Because these countries that have developed the herd immunity, which is, as soon as the UK started mentioning the idea of herd immunity, everyone jumped at them. How dare you talk about herd immunity? Yet, let's say Sweden has developed a great herd, herd immunity without a lockdown because of all the asymptomatic cases in a short period of time. Well, when the second wave hits, it's just not going to hit them in the same way. But particularly somewhere like Vietnam, where I am now, it's, you've, got to, you've got to maintain what you're doing. You've got to maintain this constant trace, contact, quarantine throughout a second wave, maybe even a third wave, maybe a fourth wave. It depends how quickly a vaccine comes. 
and how quickly they can afford it and get it out to everyone. Well, look at the flu. So, like before, before the flu season's over, it, it, they never stop. It's not like right flu season's over. They put down tools before that stopped. People are constantly them labs are having samples sent to them twelve months of the year. Um, it's not like it's not like it's going to be a case of of like this. This tracing is always going to happen. It has to happen because that's how it happens with the normal flu. Otherwise, yeah, you, the, the normal flu would come back and bite us in the ass if people weren't making a new vaccine every year. Um, well, yeah, but I would question the extent to which the flu vaccine really helps the general population. I think it tends to help people who are, or, who are vulnerable and older. Same type of thing. But then it, it's, it's something like half. It only works for half, half of people anyway. We don't trace flu particularly. Um, we just let it, we let it go through the population. We let people catch it. And we recognize that in a bad year, in the UK at least, you're going to have over 25 people dying. I mean, yeah. no one talks about the fact that... I don't want to get my figures wrong here. Um, it was either 150 or it was 500. Children in the US have died from regular flu this flu season. Mm. Let's say it's 150. 150 kids... Well, how many kids in the U.S. have died from COVID or will die from COVID already this year? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what that number is, but it's obviously not affecting kids as much. So it seems like it's proportional in some ways to flu. But again, you can't really talk about this without being shouted down when all you really want to have a do, all you want to do is have a, a, an open discussion and debate about it, recognizing yeah. that when with emotions aside, almost isn't it? Yeah. It's like uh, I know Boris Johnson got a lot of stick for the for his line about um, some like many lives will be lost. People were kicking off at that, but it's he's not choosing to to for those lives to die, depending on how how far you see his, like what you, what he's doing. But the the flu, like you said, twenty thousand people dying in a in the flu season. It's like we know that that's going to happen every single year. Yeah, we're used to it, so we accept it. It's just stating it. It's these people are going to die. It sounds very bad, and it sounds, um, you know, like you're, like you're you're a terrible person. But it's just a statement, like a, a fact that's going to happen. Yeah. Then you you also get into the political management of this because Boris Johnson just had this massive election win, AE majority landslide. What do you really want to do to cement your grip on power? You want some kind of national event like this. I'm not saying he oh, wanted yeah. this. But you want some kind of national event to, to be able to put out whatever information you want, to be able to bring people together. I mean, to be honest, in some ways, this is the type of thing that was needed post-Brexit to try and bring people together because the country was so divided between Remainers and Brexiteers. Who remembers Brexit anymore? It's like, who remembers global warming? It's true. It's, it's just, even the top seven <laughs> stories on BBC now, it used to be like, the top three would be Brexit. And now it's the top seven of coronavirus. And uh, like, it, it, you, you don't even hear about it. The only thing I've read about Brexit in the past two weeks, I reckon, is this morning, the fact that the EU is a block of trying to source PPE and hand it out. And the UK yeah. was saying that they might not have access to that because we've left. That's the only, and that's not even talking about Brexit. They're still talking about coronavirus, just with a 
a, a nod to the fact that we're leaving the EU. You, yeah. It just doesn't get mentioned anymore, does it? Yeah, and that was a political decision to stay out of the sourcing, EU sourcing of uh, PPE. That was definitely a political decision to stay separate from the EU. Yeah. With people oh, realising what and uh, it kind of shows, like if we if if we handle it well, the I know the French right. The French there's a lot of uh, French nationalists that would like the to be Lord. out of the EU. If they had a vote, you know, it would be absolute knife edge the same as us. All the people would be saying, "Ah, they'll vote to stay in eventually." But the, the the demographics are so similar, and to be honest, they've got more migrants than us. They've got more first generation migrants. First generation mm. migrants are all desperate to get out of the EU. Even if they've been in the in France for like a year, they're so anti EU. It's unbelievable. Um, same with the Netherlands, very Eurosceptic. Poland, particularly the older generation in Poland, which a lot of people would consider surprising. Um, the Hungarians now, it's really across the board. But because people don't get a chance to vote, and if you consider the last two times in Europe that people did get a chance to vote for the European Union, so the Lisbon Treaty and the EU Constitution. The Irish got a chance to vote on it, and they refused it. So the government of Ireland ignored that and asked them to vote again. And this time, they got it in just. And the same thing happened with France. France refused the constitution. So in the end, the EU constitution, I don't know how much you know about that, but nah. um, they were going to create a constitution, so similar to the American constitution, a legal document which would have made the EU more of a, an enshrined political state. And it was, it was a big project of Tony Blair, that whole era. You know, there was lots of positivity and everyone thought the economic benefits of the European Union are so great that any nationalist ideas, just, it doesn't matter. And it went to the people and all of the people in Europe just kept voting it down. And so they had to scrap it. And in the end, they put in place a treaty called the Lisbon Treaty, which basically took most of the things from the constitution without calling it a constitution. Um, so, for example, it put in place the fact that we have a, a president, kind of like a president of the EU, the fact that you've got a foreign minister of the EU, talk of having a, a more combined military force all came from that. It's very much about you, you made one step by having monetary union back in 1998 when they put in place the euro. And then the next step was ever increasing political union. People didn't want it. Mm. I have, um, I mean, this, this is the kind of thing though, like, what, like our, how much of your opinions changed since you were an 18 year old? So in fact, you can vote from 16, can't you? So how much of your well, opinions changed no, since you were 16? You can, I think you can only vote in Scotland if you're 16 and for certain things. You can't vote really? for most things. Yeah. Oh. Well, let's they say tried 18, to... that's 10 years for you. And how much has your opinion changed in 10 years about everything? And look at, look at the... How often does a referendum come up? You, you've kind of got to catch, catch that right. Otherwise, you're not really going to get the, the accurate reflection, I guess. I don't know. If this well, 10 years had been ago, held earlier, it would have been a very different story if it had been five years earlier, potentially. The change yeah, pr probably. What, I mean, in all of human history, what you find is that whenever people's economic situation is going all right, they think that next year is going to be better than last year. They generally maintain the status quo. But as soon as they see cracks in the system, 
for instance, Nazi Germany, um, fascist Italy, all of these things, SNP in Scotland, whenever anything goes wrong, people vote for change. So you, maybe you're right, but for instance, when it came to the Euro, all the politicians knew that the UK would never vote to join the Euro currency. So we've always had this strong, and to be honest, I don't know if, if France, for instance, even had a referendum to join the Euro currency. I'd be interested to find out because mm. whether they voted for it or not, I don't know. Um, they just got pushed into it. Maybe, yeah. That seems that's usually what happens in Europe. And sometimes mm. you need that. It's not necessarily a bad thing all the time. If you put everything to a referendum, like the Swiss do, for example, you know, everything gets put to a referendum. It's the most direct democracy in the whole world. Everything is there's no political parties. You vote for your representatives, they put forward laws and then they get put to the people every six months in referendums. It's amazing in some ways. But to what extent can you always get things done? Mm. It's like the when you think when you consider how much um, how just resources and manpower goes into any kind of the general election. So the campaigning that goes on for a general election or even to a worse degree, the presidential election, where the four years of a, of a president's term, the last eight months, nine months, absolutely their, their mind's just not going to be in where it should be. It's going to be in campaigning to get that second term again. That's then their yeah. priority. And it's a lot of wasted, wasted money and time. And that's the argument being made now about Trump, that everything is about re-election. Yeah, you know, so got... apparently there's never been... a a wartime president who hasn't been re-elected. Yeah, I and that. that's why he's changed his his vocal tone because he'll have been advised on this. Absolutely, the war on coronavirus. He keeps referring it as to the invisible enemy, and we'll fight this enemy. And it's very much um, all of his language is used towards that, just to try and get hundred percent. But the famous example for us is Margaret Thatcher. She gets elected in nineteen seventy nine. You know, the country's absolutely divided again, Labour, Tory. People saw the Labour Party as ruining the country, but people didn't trust the Tories. People wanted change. They wanted social welfare. They wanted the NHS. And she comes in, massive economic problems, recessions. She's talking about changing things. She's upsetting the unions, trying to realign the economy. And in the early 80s, people thought she was going to be straight back out. She wasn't going to get re-elected. And then 1982, Argentina invades the Falklands. Mm. And we'd, we'd always, you know, in the 10 years, 20 years before that, the British government, Tory and Labour, had consistently been talking to the Argentinian government about either transferring sovereignty or sharing sovereignty. They weren't bothered about the Falklands at all. But as soon as the Argentinians invaded, without loss of life, you know, there was no real, it wasn't a bloody conflict up to that point. She immediately, right, we're going to go to war with them. We're going to go back and take them. And it was all this picture of a, on the front page of the Sun newspaper in a, in a tank. Like the tanks weren't even going to the islands. I feel like I've seen that. I've seen that image. So people love it. People, if you fight the war, you don't love it. You realize what it is and you realize how bad it is. Yeah. Back home, people get into this frenzy. Yeah, nationalistic frenzy. Let's go and fight the war. We're great. Yeah. It comes down to, I mean, so if you think about the social progression that seems to have happened in the past uh, five years, heavily with, with just um, 
trans rights and even LGBT rights. And that has now taken a, a back seat as far as like open discussion in the domain because because we're filled with this. It's like you can only really make those advancements when you're not dealing with this bigger issue. Um, and it, yeah. It, yeah, it's kind of, I remember people say that, look, obviously 9-11 was horrendous, but then 12, like the, the 12th of September, was apparently just a, such a nationalistic day in the States where everybody was then just friends of their neighbors kind of thing. Everyone's flying flags. They're all yeah. not happy, but, but brought together by this one common enemy, which is then the outside, the outside attack from a different country it then just unifies everybody. And that's kind of what this kind of thing does. Um, you know, coronavirus, it's, it then becomes about what are we doing for our country, our people. People are suddenly, who, who really don't talk much to the, to the older generation. It's now, we've got young, the younger generation trying to help out the older generation, which just, I mean, it does happen, but on a percent of what is currently going on, you know? Yeah, so some of that's great. And the fact that, to be honest, I think a lot of it now is just because people have got time because no one's at work or people are working from home. It's very much more relaxed. It's probably what it's like in lots of other countries where people tend to take more longer breaks during the day. They've got more time. They've got more time to think about things. Generally, our stress level is too high in the UK. But the other angle of it is, of course, if you look at a book like um, 1984, Right? The whole idea that in 1984, the world has been divided into these, two, into these three great like, superpowers. And they're just constantly at war with each other. But they just switch all the time because they're not really fighting each other. They're not really at war. The idea yeah. is to just maintain this constant state of warfare so that all of the people have got this common enemy. They're united. The government can create the propaganda. And what I'm seeing at the moment, particularly in London, the, the Met Police in London and the way they're behaving. Again, it's hard to have a debate about this because some people are saying, well, it's, it's lockdown. The government said it's lockdown, it's quarantine, so you can't go out, you can't do this, you can't do that. But actually, we've got to remember that there is such a thing as a, as a slippery slope. I know people yeah. don't like that, but it does exist. And if you start allowing freedoms to be restricted to such an extent, and if someone's out walking the dog or if someone's walking through the park and the police think that they can just talk to them in a disrespectful way and try and limit their right to just walk down the street, we're going to start getting into problems with this. And so we've got to be very careful that we don't get wrapped up in this frenzy. Talk about enemies. Yeah. At the end of the day, police, policemen are just normal people, right? And if you... Um every single law and guideline and governance has to play to the weak. There will be the odd police person out there who just interprets the language used differently in that if I go out for a run now and I decide to sit down, uh, not even on a bench there, in the middle of a field for 20 minutes whilst I get a rest to go back, that's then seen as relaxing and you're going to get, like, I, I mean, I got, told to move on in Greenwich the other day and it was literally just stopping after a after like mm. a five mile cycle or something. It's there is this this I mean, yeah. Who who's saying that you're exercising and deciding that you're not? It's such an open ended Yeah. Uh, you know, look at some videos of Korea and you'll see how they're 
they're practicing social distancing so perfectly. No one's telling them to go home because they're all equidistant, you know, two or three meters away from each other. It's just perfect the way, like watching a computer simulation or something. Um, and when I see videos of people sat in a park alone with no one around them and the police come along and tell them to go home. Yeah. Well, the common sense is gone. It's overreach. Now, if you're walking around somewhere and there's hard surfaces and you can touch them and you can leave stuff around, I get it. But if you're in an open air environment, I just think we've got to be careful because people very easily get whipped up into this frenzy where they see any video of anyone outside. They go, yeah, yeah, get them, get them. There's something about humans that we like to, we like to catch people out. We like to... We like people to suffer sometimes. We like to. This is why you, in the Roman times, you watch gladiators fighting. You know, we want to watch people yeah, yeah, yeah. get pulled off. And, and we've got a guy. It's, it's, um, we kind of, we want to show others that where, you know, if, if, if we put up, we share a video of the police catching someone and we share it, we're like, yeah, look, they got that person. I, I agree with this side. It's, it's the, um, Showing that you're part of the team that wants to get these people and what do you call it? Uh, signaling to others. Absolutely, yeah. It's a big thing. So you talked about five years of social progress, right? Yeah. But I would talk about five to 10 to 20 years of increased, um, yeah, social signaling, social... In some ways, I would go as far as to say it's social fascism, the worshiping of certain ideas of which people are not allowed to deviate from, policed by the reactions of everyone else, and, and um, social stigmatization and being isolated from communities if you dare to have an opinion which questions somebody else's. So I'm not saying uh, trans rights, what a terrible thing that's been. Absolutely not. But what I'm saying is, Again, you've got, to, you've got to just allow freedom of expression because there is an element here of people wanting to police ideas. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about this is if, if, you, if you decide that you want to flex these rules of, of, of how you're interp interpreting lockdown, is uh, there's almost this thing now that you're against the NHS. So like as soon as if you go out for a in the park and, and just have a, have a sit down with a uh, drink or something, then, then it's seen that you're, you're saying, fuck the NHS. You don't mind the strain being put on them. Like you're anti NHS, you know, it's become this big wave. Yeah. Did you clap? I mean, did I clap? Yeah. I have for four weeks, but every, oh, yeah. every, every, everyone's getting less and less. Well, it's hard, hard not to, living here you're, you're, you're against all the other well, it's houses hard not to clap. well yeah because you otherwise you're just sat on your balcony or you know in your front window everyone's you know my street looks onto another street everyone's then kind of looking at each other i mean it, it it's it's quite a nice thing to do still i don't i don't mind the i can appreciate the the meaning it's behind it, social, isn't it yeah i do, I do like the social element of it but Again, this kind of getting people outside to go and clap. It, it made fun. sense once, and now it's be, uh, I've seen it referred to as like um, the why aren't you wearing your poppy thing, you know? It's like, what, do, do, do you not like the armed forces? 
you, you fucking, you don't like the armed forces. And it's like, well, it's, I'm not saying that I don't appreciate them. It's just, I don't know where. Yeah. yeah, there shouldn't really be that. any holy cows. Do you know that term, holy cows? No. So like in India, the cow is sacred. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, the, so you, and, and you just can't, the cows walk around in the streets. They walk around yeah. on the roads. People drive around them. It's like, oh, well, we can't question anything to do with the cows walking around, right? Well, yeah. we shouldn't have this situation, I don't think, in any society, in any place in the world, at any time, where there are things you can't question. That's the, the key way. And there should always be discussion and debate, and you should never fear talking about something. So, no, for instance, true. you know, and I've caught myself doing it a little bit recently with China, because I thought, well, you know, maybe there's some point in the future where I might want to work in China or I might have a job offer there or something and so I thought should I really be saying right now that China is the greatest authoritarian regime yeah. since uh, Soviet Russia or Nazi Germany mm, should I really be saying that well actually it's a fact there's a million Uyghurs in camps making Halloween decorations under lock and key yeah and Christians um, People, people can't speak. People don't have access to freedom of information. The propaganda machine that's going out against coronavirus now is immense and almost unbelievable. I don't think people really realize just how powerful, historically significant, and dangerous the Chinese government is. If it's making me question whether I can say something, and we know it's making governments question whether they can do it, yeah. what position are we in there? What's it doing to, to, to not, not to make this anti-China or anything, but what's it doing to, to Chinese Look citizens? Yeah, you know? they, they can't, they, they, there's very little that they can do to, to me and you as far as, you know, they, they can't physically lock us up. They can't um, restrict our bank accounts or anything. Sure. I'm sure they could hack our computers or whatever if they really felt it was necessary. But it, it makes you realize, like, as a citizen, what, what they can do and how, how powerful it can be. So like, well, if you're scared, imagine being a citizen. Yeah, but they're all, it's 1984 again. You know, there's a point at the end of 1984, the guy's called Winston Smith in the book. And by the end of it, they've managed to convince him that they're, they're not a bad regime. And they've managed to convince him that they're, they're correct. They've not only brainwashed him, he truly believes what he's being told by the end. And I think that's the situation that we've got in China. Broadly speaking, people, I, I think, are very sport for the regime, like you probably would be if you're in that situation and you don't have access to all the information. And I'm not saying for a second that the Western governments are perfect, because they're absolutely not. I mean, there's certain things that we know the American government does, the British government does, that are terrible. If we just... Um, if we go back to the UK, there's a site in North Yorkshire. I don't think a lot of people realize this, but there is a place in North Yorkshire where the entire world's internet goes through. Yeah. And it's all been stored by British and American uh, governments, and it's all on servers. And I suspect China's doing the same thing, because why not? And the, the power that gives them, and the way that they can control information, I don't know. I just it worries me about what the future holds. Yeah, because it's not like any of us are specialists in that area, uh, and uh, I certainly haven't spent 
crazy amount of time thinking about what that it like I only recently I watched a documentary about surveillance and it it kind of enlightened me to a few things imagine a professional or just someone whose life's work is in this they'll truly understand how much this data can be damaging like we think that signing data away on terms and conditions when you install an app you, you just click accept right you don't you don't read it but to the right person that data that you're giving away even if it, if you consider it a small nugget of, of uselessness then what you can do with that is is crazy yeah i mean look at look at facebook look at all of the modern companies now as much as they might be providing a service in one side the majority of their business is actually data mining, data yeah. management, action. Um, Westworld's a really good example. Do you watch Westworld at the minute? Nah. So the TV show Westworld, it's got to a point where these companies have mined so much data, which are all tied to us. So they've got our email addresses, they're our database, they can compile all the information, put it together. You are profiled. It starts with them being able to use those profiles to target advertisements towards you. So they want mm. to get as an accurate a profile as possible. It continues to just get so complex and so developed that ultimately they can predict what you're going to do next. They can predict the decisions that you will make, the rough way your life is going to pan out. And the more data you've got, the, the better you can predict the decisions. And so ultimately they get to a point where they can completely control the world because they know what everyone's going to do at any point. As soon as you are born in a deterministic way, they know from the data, from what your parents did, everything is, is tracked out for you. That's like the way we're heading. And uh, do you want to give that type of control to a company like China, where there's no democratic oversight? They would argue against that. They would say that it's a democracy. People do get to vote. But in China, people vote for a local representative who votes for a next level representative, who vote for a next level representative, who vote for the next level representative who then vote for the president. At least the election of Donald Trump showed you, whether you agree with it or not, that people can shake up the system in Western democracies. And they can, okay, Corbyn was hounded out. Corbyn's one way where the media and powerful corporations were probably a bit too powerful, but, but Trump got in, so. Yeah. Which um, again is is due to that data. Very well, much, yeah, very okay. much. Um, yeah. Have you seen the Brexit uh, film on Netflix? I told you about it, right? Yeah, I've not watched it. Yeah, know. very very good. You should watch it. It's only it's an hour and a half long. Which yeah. I don't know why it wasn't pushed as a, a bigger thing. You know, I, I don't know if it's it, it's shot and feels like a Netflix original. Um, but it's, it was Channel 4, wasn't it? It was a Channel 4. They made it not long after the actual Brexit debate. Was it? Right. That makes sense then. It's the it one way. Very... Cumberbatch, right? Yeah, Benedict. What's his face? He's playing um, Dominic Cummins. Is he playing Dominic yeah. Cummins? County yeah, Durham, and, um, yeah, yeah, he nails the accent, does it very well. But uh, yeah, that, that, that kind of... I mean, it's dramatised massively, of course, but it gives you an insight into they, they basically give it a nod about winning Donald Trump's campaign and how they can help win the Brexit leave campaign. It's a good watch. Yeah. 
Well, to, to what extent have they manipulated public opinion or to what extent is that level of data mining, like, like what Cambridge Analytica done, just actually got to the real truth of what people wanted? There is that, yeah. I don't know, I I don't guess, know enough about it. So. It's, it's more just, I think we, we know that people are very elastic and, and pliable. Um, and there are certain ways to... To, to well look at Lord of the Flies. That was a, a classic example of how people can be can be brought over to different sides and how how they can be led by someone yeah, who's maybe right. not in a position to lead lead. But um, it, yeah, maybe maybe there is maybe it did just bring out the actual people who would have voted leave anyway. But I reckon there was a lot more manipulation at play there. Like. They, they basically looked into what was getting people down in general about, about the whole country, economically, socially, and, and then they just, they find the, the parts that people are very, you know, sensitive to, and then just run with that. And did, obviously, a good job. They, they nailed it, whether you agree with that oh, or not. Oh, yeah. So that what they did then, if they showed people that they recognised what the problems were, and the other side didn't. Yeah. Is that right? In so a way, I mean, it's it's interesting. It <laughs> the uh, they they show David Cameron in that um, the the character that David Cameron's played by saying that the Leave campaign has essentially been going for thirty years, and the the Stay campaign now is six months to um to get going. It's it's like the the Leave campaign has been building itself up organically for for such a long time. Well, I voted Remain. I was a big yeah, supporter. Same. I went out and posted the leaflets. Um, and it just made, it made sense. But then since then, I've been completely in favour of, of Leave because I've seen the way in which everyone tried to undermine the vote. Whether you agreed with it or not, we, all, we, we, we set the rules to begin with and we all decide what the rules are. It's a democracy. And you can't change the rules afterwards. And as much as people can say, well, you won't, you won't told the truth. Well, when are we ever? That's what an election is in any situation. And so I, I, I really felt like it was important that we got Brexit done to steal the terms from Boris Johnson. Yeah. Yeah, I, I very much like I voted Remain as well, but I definitely wouldn't have been happy with like a second referendum and this people's choice thing. It's like, it's fuck, like it's done. You, you, it's done, yeah. It wouldn't have done any good, I don't think, like stabbing that wound again. And I hated that term of people's, what was it, the people's vote? Pe the people's, people's vote. vote, yeah, yeah. Well, what, bullshit, what was the first one? First yeah. one was the people's vote. It's just, and you know, you can, again, it goes back to this idea of the fascism of ideas in which you, there's certain things you can't challenge. And with a lot of people who were Remainers, there was just no discussion or debate to be had. At least with me, all along, and I assume with you, and I assume with most reasonable people, you could recognise the faults of the European Union. You could recognise the fact that it wasn't the true democracy. You could recognise the fact that the European Commission had most of the power, if not all of the real power, and yet none of them were democratically elected. You could recognise the fact that for all the good stuff, like the environmental legislation um, the regulations on environmental waste management and stuff like that fantastic 
workers' rights. There was all the bad stuff on corporate rights and the extent to which corporations were going to be allowed to sue national governments and stuff. There was, there's lots of good stuff about the European Union, but there's a hell of a lot of bad, and people need to have an, an open and honest discussion about that. Yeah, 100%. I remember um, I did watch a, a campaign, like a, a video that was very dominant about leave, um, very early doors in the whole thing, and I, I, it kind <coughs> of, as any convincing documentary can be, that brief moment in time, I was like, well, maybe, maybe leave's a good thing then. And then I looked into why you would remain, but they, they just played everything on fishing, stuff like that. Like the, the EU doesn't allow British, uh, British fishermen to go into the North sea. Whereas fishermen from Denmark who are not governed by the EU so much can then freely fish in UK waters and all well, this shit. Well, yeah, that's not that's not necessarily true. There's like all the fishing waters get shared out, and then there's a quota. So we're allowed to take so much from our own waters, and other countries are allowed to take so much from our waters. But yeah, it was an emotional argument, wasn't it? It was all an emotional argument. Yeah, but, and they they're interviewing working class fishermen back then. I was obviously just like, that's bullshit. We like we shouldn't we should be allowed to fish in our own waters. Now I'm just completely like, we should all just stop fucking fishing. That would be the better way to do it. And then we don't destroy the waters around our country. That's a better idea. Um, but yeah, yeah, well, an interesting one. I tell you what, right? This is another thing. So six months ago, the whole world was was controlled by Extinction Rebellion. The whole thing was Extinction Rebellion, and the idea was that we're all going to go extinct because of man-made climate change. Well, actually, now which came into a global pandemic where the risk of extinction, all right, not extinction, but the idea of lots of people are going to die suddenly becomes a lot more real. And I'm not hearing anything mm. about climate change, but where's Extinction Rebellion now? Because if Extinction Rebellion was going to fit and follow its name, where it were rebelling against extinction, and what they should really be fighting about, Again, is this thing of overfishing of animal, wild animals being hunted and killed and, and eaten. Because actually, if we're going to focus on pandemics now, well, the greatest risk of extinction now surely comes from the fact that we realize every time we go and kill all these pangolins, every time we eat bat soup, we're putting ourselves at risk of extinction from mass pandemics. So I want to see Extinction Rebellion going out and talking about let's stop huge amounts of fishing, let's stop. The taking of wild animals to, to the extent it happens now. It's true. But then, I mean, there'd be some people, I don't think we know enough yet on this, but obviously a lot of people are sharing the fact that skies are clear in certain parts. Like there's, there's Indian towns that can now see the Himalayas, which are 30 miles away, which have never been able to see because of pollution. Um, although some of the stories I've seen about fucking dolphins in the Venice canals were incorrect. They, I believe yeah. that was somewhere else in uh, Italy. But there's a lot of chat about how this is helping the, uh, the ecosystem. And uh, I, I do wonder how many people are very much low-key in support of this kind of thing. Like humans had it coming. We, we've done this to ourselves. And uh, like I told you so kind of. 100%. But. Why isn't the argument then, it shouldn't be about 
Well, they don't have to be mutually exclusive, but the argument shouldn't just be about emissions all the time. Because actually, what I'm seeing is pollution is a big problem. We've all stopped going outside and we've all stopped chucking crap everywhere. We've stopped, um, pardon me, we've stopped using so much plastics in some places. We've stopped, uh, over, we've stopped consuming so much, I would say, generally. Over the, I'd like to see the figures on it, but... Um, We've, we've cut down probably on the amount of yeah, wild animals that are being taken and sold. So I would say that the biggest thing that we can do is protect biodiversity. It's about, it's about protecting what's out there and it's about protecting habitats from destruction. The focus doesn't necessarily need to always only be on emissions because this is what people get so driven by and it's every global warming, climate change. It's just change carbon, 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 isn't it? Carbon, yeah. And actually... You know, water, water vapor is fifty percent of the greenhouse effect. Yeah, I say that a little bit. Quick. You can't. Again, it's another topic where people don't like to see a debate about it. They don't like to see discussion. All right, the world's getting hotter, without a doubt. But you've got to look at climate in like. I, you know, I've got a really good graph. I'd love to show you um, about climate change and about the fact that you've got to look at climate over hundreds of years. You can't look at climate over generations. And if yeah. you look at Warming. If you look at warming over the past 100 years, say, well, actually, but until about the 1970s, there wasn't much of a trend going on. In fact, there was a period of global cooling from like the 1940s to the 1970s, and then we get this this uh, peak and this spike. I mean, who? I just find it incredible that people make predictions about global warming based on 40 or 50 years worth of data. It's true, but I mean, when it's when it's all you've got to to base it on, it's worth to, offering that up as a as a point. Yeah, but then people shouldn't be so sure, and they shouldn't they shouldn't act like they're so convinced. And again, then the argument should just go back to, well, it's common sense to say that if we pollute, we're going to cause problems because we're messing up the planet and we're messing up natural rhythms and natural ecosystems. So instead of always talking about, I'm so convinced that the world is going to be Someone said the world is going to be ended in seven years. Global warming yeah. has got such a point. The world's going to end in seven years. In fact, how about saying the data's looking pretty bad? We should probably do something about this. Um, let's not scare all the kids and tell them that they're all going to die in seven years. Instead, how about we stop eating so much shit? How about we stop chucking all this plastic everywhere and we just start thinking a little bit about the environment we live in? Where's yeah. that common sense argument? Yeah. Because I think we need graphs. Of, well, we need, we need them. Some I've never stuff. done a screen share on this, so I'm not really. Um, I wouldn't trust myself to not get it. To not get it wrong. Yeah, but we let's do it for next time. Sure, um, I've got loads of graphs. Yeah, and I, I kind of every. I keep wanting to like quote stuff and go on my phone, but yeah, I'm resistant. Yeah, we need a we need a Jamie. Yeah, pull it up. It's it's true though. I mean, well, to be fair, I've got my Mac sat in front of me, so if I get my keyboard, I can also run my Mac. But yeah, I mean, I read a book by David Wallace Wells. I only like got halfway through or something, but that that was quite scary. And ironically, I felt like a shitbag because I, I started reading it when I was in Bali, so I'd just come off the fucking twenty-one hour. Which flight. time? First time. Uh, just come off the twenty-one hour flight. Um. And then you're reading about the the impact of 
<laughs> that kind of flight. Um, yeah. So now, to be fair, on my last one, I carbon offset it. But that it is hella expensive to do that as well. And I do want to do that for well, work trips. Do you know what, mate? Right, this is another problem with carbon trading and carbon offsetting. So what they end up doing, right, is let's say in the Amazon rainforest, you've got these ancient forests. There's, actually, by the way, there is an argument to suggest that a lot of them are man-made, man-made and stuff. Uh, but anyway, let's say you've got these really biodiverse ancient forests that have been there for thousands of years. And some companies chopping them all down, absolutely devastating for, for the planet. You know, 100 species go, go extinct every day. Did you know that figure? Yeah. 100 species yeah, extinct every day. Yeah, Part, part of that is natural, right? That, that happens anyway. New species come along. But that's, that's a lot. And it's, a lot of it is because of human activities in places like the Amazon rainforest, in places like Vietnam. So someone comes along and says, right, let's uh, offset our carbon for this flight. And all that happens is the people who've just chopped down all those trees in the Amazon rainforest, they plant conifers. And they plant yeah. these trees with absolutely no biodiversity. And you can go on Google Maps right now and you can look at these areas of the rainforest and you can see where the carbon offsetting forests are being grown to replace the ancient rainforest. And if you walked through it, it would be silent. You would just, it would be eerie. You would hear nothing. There would be nothing there because these trees cannot sustain light. Certainly not in the same way that the rainforest could. So everyone thinks Prince Harry's going around. Yeah, I've flown on a private jet five times this year, but I've offsetted all my carbon. Well, hold on a second. The carbon's not the issue here. The carbon, whether carbon is a problem or not, I'm sure it is. I'm sure there's, there's a lot to that. But I think that the bigger problem is the loss of biodiversity because of habitat destruction. And all these people who are offsetting carbon are actually just contributing to it, contributing to it because it becomes normalized. And people think, well, we've planted another tree, that's okay. It's not. Well, look at, look at just general biomass of, of animals right like we're essentially stored carbon and there's i think by weight if you took all the humans in the world by weight and all the ants in the world by weight the ants still outweigh us according to guesstimations i yeah. guess you could call great, it aren't they? great ants. and they're just walking little bits of carbon then and it's not just ants there's there's flies there's other insects there's everything in the rainforest that is holding on to carbon and if that Rainforest has been destroyed. They can't eat anymore, so they die, go in the ground. And having having carbon stored in trees is good, but that's always gonna just release again. It'll die and release, and it's it's you you're you're only dealing with one problem when you just plant the trees that can't support wildlife, because then wildlife wildlife also store carbon. Yeah. It's, it's another way of um, well, like mushrooms, mushrooms growing up out of dead trees. Things eat mushrooms and the cycle continues. If you don't have that cycle, then there's a lot of carbon not being stored properly. I'll tell you what, mate, seeing as though we got onto the topic of mushrooms, right? Um, I've been thinking a lot about human consciousness recently, right? And you know me, I'm, I've always been quite scientific and I've always, when I've thought about what is human consciousness and maybe animal consciousness, because to what extent they're different. Probably not actually that much in some way. Well, yeah, it's uh, look at look at pigs, pigs and dolphins. Dolphins are conscious. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. 
conscious in maybe in different ways or maybe to not the same extent or maybe this certain parts of our brain are more conscious than theirs but we've got certain elements that are yeah um anyway so i've always had this very materialistic view of it like okay so the neurons have connected and they've made the pathways and all those different connections going off at once create consciousness and then the more you look into it and the more you realize just how complex it is I mean, anyway yeah it's complex someone started talking to me about the idea that consciousness exists outside of the human brain and the human brain is a receptor of consciousness yeah. have you heard about that i think either you've mentioned this or my brother mentioned it sounds like something your brother would have mentioned yeah it's so are you saying that your your science is being uh kind of spirited away no no because no. i thought it was very interesting and i like to hear people talk about it but i just can't get behind it i, I can't i'd like i'm gonna keep reading more about it but i can't get behind the idea however I then started following this mathematician called Sir Roger Penrose. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah. So, his idea, consciousness is too complex to just be this simple neuron-to-neuron -neuron transmission going on. It's, yeah. It just can't be that way. So then, so he talks about how something else is going on within every neuron or within cells. Um, and he talks about these things called tubular pedicles. Now, the last time I heard of tubular pedicles was when I did A-level biology, but we also learned about them when we did GCSE. Do you remember them? No, really. So the tubular pedicles are the things that during mitosis, when your cells start to, to split and double right, and grow, yeah, a couple of themselves, um, it's like these weird fingers that, pull apart your DNA. So first of all, the DNA copies itself. And then from each part of the cell, these tubular pedicles come out and they pull the, the copied DNA apart to each side of the cell so that the cell can then divide. And Roger Penrose has been following this research from someone who says, well, actually, if we look within these tubular pedicles, we find something amazing going on, some kind of I don't know. I can't begin to describe it. But anyway, the final thing was that there are quantum processes going on within our mind. So just like you get quantum pairing between different particles, where what you do to one can happen to the other. And you've got the idea of Schrodinger's cat, where, where one event can actually have infinite number of possible outcomes, right? And so the idea of a quantum computer is that instead of having a switch within a computer that's either one or a zero. It's everything it's in between. Everything. Yeah. And so his ultimate idea is that consciousness exists in humans because certain parts of our brain are basically quantum computers. And the neurons aren't just operating on a switch of being on or off in connection. It's not a binary computation. It's, it's a quantum computer. And this was the point where I finally thought, right, I've got materialistic answer to what is consciousness yeah i do feel like we have we've spoken before i feel like years ago we spoke about the difference between a brain and a computer and a, and a computer's binary and what you need to do with um like a brain operates more analog right like 
it's not our neuron isn't firing or not firing it's it's doing other things we're not just operating in this binary thing of like well this pathway gets fired that pathway gets fired it's not just that what is it, it not though it makes, it's actually isn't that what it is could it not be that that it's on off but it's so quick and it's happening between not just one connection but because one neuron is connected to lots of others in this matrix that it could be on and off couldn't it it could but it could be on so with digital you've got um whatever your voltage is you might have 10 volts 20 volts and then that could be zero that's your baseline and then say if 10 volts jumps up to 15 there's your one that that measurement of 10 to 15 is your zero or one that's how it's measuring it that's the gate i guess whereas with your brain it might there's i very much doubt given that it's all electrical signals still i doubt that a neuron is just at the like turned on or off we could have a different amount of um I guess current going through it and it could be on for a longer amount of time. You got zero and one, but what if one was on for 10 seconds? That might mean something else. Well, that's basically what LSD and psilocybin and stuff are doing, right? Because your, your neurons, your neurons transmit messages because of um, things like acetylcholine, different neurotransmitters that bridge the gap because neurons aren't actually touching and connected. Yeah. There's a space between all of them. So you've got that neurotransmitter, which bridges the gap. And we, with, with most drugs anyway, things like um, ecstasy, MDMA, all that stuff, all we're doing is we're replacing or we're changing the amount or we're locking in the neurotransmitters. So in a way, I suppose, yeah, increasing the voltage. Or well, psilocybin's been shown to, to connect from what would already be and established like a new ones there obviously it's it's been shown to establish new pathways coming off it yeah yeah that that one neuron might have been connected to 500 others and now it's connected to 502 others because you've had this thought through psilocybin uh yeah psilocybin and it's it's established a new pathway i think they yeah, very man, much, this... there's hard evidence on that Totally. The, all the evidence now coming out of, um, what is it, U University College London or something? Johns Hopkins. Johns Hopkins. John, John Hopkins well, yeah. Um, yeah, it's very, it's very in trend, this idea of what's going on in the brain, brain science. But I suppose we'd never, before now, we'd never actually really fully captured what's going on. We've never, we've never been able to fully understand the human brain. So yeah, we're probably alive at the time where it's being found out. Yeah, until it then becomes weaponized or monetized, or and then we'll be alive for that too, potentially. And that might be another fucking nightmare that we have. We'll be alive, or we'll be switched, switched yeah, on to something. Switch us off when they want. Have you, uh, have you watched? Do you know much about Go the game? About what? Go. 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 You surely heard of it. No. As a board game enthusiast, I would have thought that you'd heard. I was, I was very confident you would have. It's the, Never heard of it. You know how um, it's, it's basically the biggest board game in the world. It's the oldest. Uh, I guess Monopoly no. on, and chess is, probably, chess is probably the biggest. But Go is a Chinese board game that's been going for thousands of years. Right, um, okay, I have heard of this, yeah. Yeah, you've got the black and white Where, Did I read this in Sapiens or something? Is it in Sapiens? 
I've um, been not sure. I don't remember reading about it in Sapiens. I've definitely I've heard about it before, but I don't know where from. Right. So I um, watched a documentary the other night called AlphaGo. <coughs> um, it's basically, you know, the game of chess, you've got, as soon as you move that first pawn, there is a set number of ways that your next moves can be. Yeah. If you look at, if you think of it like a tree branch, there's this option, this option, this option, this option. With Go, as soon as you place your first one, there are more options than there are items in the world. So it's, yeah, it's very. I much... heard about from AI. Yeah. That's where I heard about it from. So yeah. they 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 got that computer, this AI, which you know it's been like twenty years since they managed to get AI to defeat like the greatest chess grandmasters. But yeah, they've only just got AI to win a game of Go, right? Is that it? Yeah, it's a fantastic documentary called AlphaGo on YouTube. You should watch it tonight. It's uh, AlphaGo. It's, it's free because it's on YouTube. But yeah, so it can't be with AI. It can't be approached in the same way that chess can. Like you, you can. You know how Connect Four, knots uh, and crosses. Let's say after after a while, knots and crosses, you realise that pretty much the first person who put places their um, their mark then gets to they, they dictate the chances of winning for them, unless you fuck up royally. But with Go, it's um because of the amount of, of different options available and the amount of different um, styles that different people play, you then, you can't predict it in the same way. You can't just say like, they've done X, so let's do Y. And it's, it, that, that's why it was so hard for AI to try and compute because you can't, you can't run a computer on this deep cycle to a potential infinite place. And then obviously the computing power that you need for that um, is, is next level. But in this documentary, I don't want to give too much away. They do end up beating it, which I think a lot of people have probably heard about that anyway. Um, you know, it was in, in 2016, the world champion at Gore, they ended up defeating him. And it was, uh, it, it's a real good documentary on it just, just highlighting the issues that, that it has, I guess, and how... Um, I don't know. It's very, it's like a little insight into what we're what we're dealing with potentially in the future. I know a lot of people think AI is around the corner, but it's kind of not because there's so much that it kind of it needs to it needs to deal with. Like it's it's taken years to get it to play the game of Go on a team that's oh, funded by Google. It's exponential, so it's gonna it's it's like the coronavirus. It's going to go from being a few little cases to it's really it is around the clock. I mean, we're getting to a point now where we will have driverless cars in 10 yeah. years. I mean, it's people would might still question that, but they, they fully don't appreciate the extent to which growth in AI and technology is exponential. The problem is, um, with driverless cars, is you've got unpredictability. I think that's when again, it is human. Like yeah the the amount of different routes you can take not even routes the a twitch of the steering wheel this way by half an inch compared to a twitch this way half an inch depending on what speed you're at depending on what car you're driving um can that's infinite possibilities for another for a machine to constantly be predicting i don't know enough about this to, to really weigh in on it obviously but 
I know there's a few people who, on the car side of things, are, are confident that it, that's around the corner. But as far as replacing people's jobs and becoming set in our own society that we should be scared of it, um, there's still people that think that we're 40, 50 years away, which is... Yeah. Which is crazy. Well, uh, yeah, I just uh, when I try and think about what the world's going to be like in fifty years, it's it's almost beyond what I could imagine. I think, and, yeah. and all right, we're not going to have flying cars. I don't think. Well, I don't see why in fifty years we won't have mass use of uh, flying drones, which are controlled by AI. Mm-hmm. Why not? They all communicate with each other. The sky's a lot more open space than roads are. Why not? Well, I mean, because you might you might not need the drones. Um, like me and Spen have discussed about. Um, I had I had this thought where really traffic lights are only there because we can't. The cars come in this way. Cars come in this way. I mean, you don't want it. You don't want them to hit. So you have to stop one of them so the other one can go. And really, if everything was centralized onto a system and the cars were in, connected to that, you can then from half a mile away, if a car's doing 40 miles an hour, another car's doing 40 miles an hour, you slow one of them down to 39 miles an hour and it'll just miss. And they yeah. can both carry on, which for yeah. emissions and everything is amazing, for everybody getting there on time is amazing. Um, that kind of technology, I'm sure. I mean, is the infrastructure for difficult to implement, but well, if, if everyone banded together, if Tesla banded with BMW and, and Google's car, Apple's car, and they all had this, this, I guess, bed of code or this centralized server that can then control it. But you've got to ask yourself, actually, to what extent do we even need traffic lights? Because you come to somewhere like Vietnam, where everyone just goes, and you start thinking about human complexity theory. So you look at the way ants, bees, and colonies work. It's all about complexity theory and the way they learn to react against each other. And I see the same thing, not that I'm comparing Vietnam to an ant colony, but you see the same thing when you go on the roads here. Everyone's moving out of each other's way. There's no centralized structure trying to control people. There's a recognition that actually, if you just leave people, they, they, they find a way. So in lots of parts of the UK now, they're taking away the white lines in the roads because they realize that sometimes it's causing more accidents by having all these road markings. Whereas if you leave people, to make decisions themselves and follow this complexity theory, then you get less accidents. So yeah, I mean, we, we certainly can't do it with you, but yeah. yeah. I mean, there's not there's not a chance that um, the UK we have the safest roads in the world, right? Why would you ever want to jeopardise that by saying like, let's just just fuck off all the things that have made us the safest in the world? But in Bali. I feel like I've gone round two roundabouts maybe there because you just don't need them. And the, there's the odd red light. But generally, you're coming up, you're looking to see if you're going to crash with anybody. If you are, then you put your brakes on a little bit and move around. Everyone's just slotting in around each other. And that's better. It, it kind of, it's more utilitarian to have everybody go from 20 miles an hour down to 10 than it is to have someone carry on going 20 and, and then a line of, 10 people win doing zero just for one person to go. And it kind of, I, I only just recently this year watched uh, the Unibomber documentary. And then you sat at a red light on the nighttime sometimes just thinking like, 
Why the fuck am I here? What is the point of this? I'm, I'm literally doing nothing. I'm giving way to a pedestrian crossing and there's no one around because yeah. someone will press the button and walked off half a minute. And it's like, there's a lot of that that you can just eradicate. But people just need to learn across roads as well. That's, a, that's another thing. I, I wish we had it ingrained in our culture that like we're fully grown adults. How can you not see that there's a car and just cross the road? There are people who need them. That's why you keep the buttons in there. But it's mental that we're very quick to click buttons and stuff these days. Well, do you know what, mate? Once I almost killed a guy. <laughs> right? I'm serious. So I'm driving through Newton Aglift down the main road. And I was, I, I'm sure I was doing the speed limit. I think it was when you're going past Tesco. Do you know down the avenue? Is it like is that a forty road or is that a thirty? Probably a thirty. That's, right? It's all a thirty, yeah. Right. Well, I, I think I was doing thirty. I'm pretty sure I was doing thirty anyway. But I was just going long straight, and outside the fire station, yeah. there's Zebra Crossing, and I was just going, and I wasn't paying attention. I didn't look, and there was this old guy, and the light went red, and he just put his foot out. He stepped one foot in the road, and at that point my car was there and I just hadn't seen him. I hadn't seen the red light. I wasn't expecting it. And honestly, if it had been one, if it, a second different, I could have killed him. Yeah. If you were tired that day, if you hadn't had a couple of cups of coffee that day. Do you know, I wasn't even tired. I don't even know what it is. And afterwards I felt this intense guilt, but also yeah, yeah. this feeling, God, what, you know, what could have happened? Stupid That's mistakes. what I mean. If you hadn't, if you hadn't slept well the night before, you could have been dead. Simple as that. If you'd, if you'd been, I don't know, if you'd had a horrible night's sleep, your brain will have been slower, then you could have killed him. It's, it's weird, the, the little the little tiny yeah. differences that life can throw us like that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I want to talk to you about was um, capitalism. <laughs> what do you think? I think a fair few people around here are very anti-capitalist at the moment. I've seen a few posters saying uh, coronavirus isn't the problem, capitalism is. And I what, think... this Peckham? Yeah. Or London? Just, just Peckham. I haven't really been around London that much. Um, and really, the parts of London I have been around are all dead because they're all the tourism spots, all workers, and no one's around. Um, yeah. Well, I mean... I've always been pro-capitalism, I think. There are, there are gaping holes in it, like there would be with any economic um, ideology. What's the gaping hole in capitalism? There's, there are massive imbalances. Um, and, you know, I watched, literally last night, I watched a documentary on how the banks um, create money. It's all just, it used to be that for a bank to have, for a bank to give you a thousand pound loan, yeah, it used to be that if they give you a thousand pounds, they'd need um, there's about three or four hundred pounds, like technically in with them. They could they would then borrow in that extra sixty percent was then not existing really, and now it's gone down two percent. Yeah, which is just but it's, it's, it's made us rich. You know the whole history of money making. If you go back to um, so you go back like a thousand years and Christians or Catholics weren't allowed to lend anybody money. So the only people that were allowed to lend money were Jewish people or people who weren't Christians. And so the richest people a thousand years ago, 
even 500 years ago in certain parts of before the Renaissance, before the Reformation, it was it was Jewish people the only ones who could lend money. And you lend that money, you get interest, you make money. That's how the economy grows. So you don't have economic growth until after the Reformation and the Renaissance when you start to get these merchants in northern Italy, the Medici family, uh, Florence and Venice, and they start they create the first banks, the first international banks, and they lend money at interest. And it creates more money in the system, basic monetary uh, policy. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's made us rich, but you're right, it's, it leaves us vulnerable. We wouldn't be where we are right now, the UK, without all of this. I, like, I would, the, this documentary is highlighting that we used to, used to obviously have all these other countries. We had Hong Kong, um, we've still got the Cayman Islands and the Virgin Islands. And when, once, once countries started just wanting independence, then our dominance of the pound around the world was then suddenly shrinking. Um, so then, it, did you know that the city of London is a separate city within London? Yeah, the square mile is run by the corporation of the city of London. I had and no idea London, about that, and it's, it's crazy. Yeah, man. You see the signs. If you go over the bridge and you go to where like the Bank of England is, and you see the sign saying Corporation of the City of London. It makes sense now. And I was I was over that way last week. And I I can I I'm, once I'd seen the Corporation of um London kind of emblem, it rang a bell. Like I've definitely seen that before. But they they're controlled by the corporations and they can vote in parliament using their unelected MP who's only elected by the corporation, I guess. But he has no, to no, be there's in, people who live um, in the city of London, so they, they vote for their MP in the city of London. Yeah, but the we don't get a chance to not have him in there or, or anything. Like, that person is always in Parliament. What that do you makes mean? sense. So, like, nobody else... In the city of London. Yeah, but nobody else in Parliament can... It was something like... They're, they're different, in a way. They're like elected by these higher people in the city of London. The mayor of the, the mayor of the city of London can choose that person, I think. There was some dodginess about it. Not the M not the MP for London. MPs voted in London the City of London is voted in the same way as everyone else. But obviously other people a different person in Parliament as well then there might be there might be multiple. But right. they set up all these um, tax havens and and chances for shell companies. And yeah, stuff. it's the relics of empire. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, interesting facts. Oh, go on. It's it's just basically that's that's allowed us to then start being the the dominant um, the dominant force around the world financially, at least until recently. Yeah, we created modern corporate capitalism. All business and corporate law and stuff originated in the UK, spread across the Commonwealth, went to America. They've adapted it and made their own version, but it's all based on British common law. And the system we put in place started by things like uh, Hudson Bay uh, Company, East India Company, mm-hmm. um, British British South African Company, all those different things, corporations which have which have made the world economy. Um, and yeah, I suppose this is for me that is the big gaping hole in capitalism that so much of it is unaccountable. And because so much of it is about looking for short-term gain and short-term profits rather than thinking about 
what your long-term profits might be. There's a belief in capitalism, corporate capitalism, that as long as things are going right in the short term and you can just keep doing well in the short term forever, then you do well in the long term. But people like Elon Musk, for instance, are some of the very few people who, are, who aren't thinking about short term, they're thinking about future long-term gains. Yeah. Um, to be honest, Facebook as well, to an extent, with its data mining, it's all about thinking of, you know, 50 years down the line, even 100 years, what those companies could be. That's, that's I think, the gaping hole. And uh, Amazon. I know yeah, um, Amazon. Bezos like a has a lot, of, a lot of things that he's really not going to see the full impact of. He's uh, they, they built a, a clock in a mountain, a physical clock, moving pendulums and everything, in a mm-hmm. mountain that's um, set to run for 10,000 years and keep track of time just in case. Well, here's another thing. Talking about long term, right? So we've 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 been making nuclear waste for about fifty years, sixty years, seventy years ish. Well, yeah, first first nuclear waste must have been in nineteen forty four. Yeah. So let's say coming up to eighty years, right? And then for the last thirty years, all we've been thinking about is what we're gonna do because this nuclear waste is going to be around for more than 10,000 years. So how are we going to put it somewhere and make sure that no one in the future goes and digs it up? Mm. So we could go and put a load of nuclear waste somewhere in some giant underground complex and some people in the future come along and think, oh, this is a great mystery. Like the pyramids of Egypt thinks we've got to go in. What's in there? It's given us yeah. some kind of signal of radiation. So there's a committee of people right now whose job it is to think 10,000 years in the future and they're designing how they're going to keep people aware. So in 10,000 years, obviously we won't speak English or if we do speak English, it's going to have adapted and changed. We're probably going to be speaking in memes and emojis a lot more. Yeah, or even Neuralink, we won't be even speaking. Well, there you go. So these people have got to find a way to communicate with the future with a, in a language that doesn't yet exist and which might never mm. exist. And so they've done things like, they thought, well, do we, do we build all these giant spikes? Spikes look scary to humans, no matter who you are, it looks dangerous. So we, so we surround the whole complex with spikes. But then you've got to think, well, in 10,000 years, are people still not just going to think, oh, wow, this is amazing. What the hell's in there? There's other things like, do we, do we create artificial animals? Do we alter their DNA so that they glow in the dark and stuff. All the animals in the area glow in the dark. When we created the, the sign for biohazards, you know that sign where it's like free yeah. things and yeah? Um, that was done on the same principle. How do you make a sign that defies language, that will last a long time and that will always warn people of danger? So uh, yellow and black is in nature, is a color of danger, no matter who yeah, you are. You what these snakes. So I always found that dead interesting. What do you, how do you communicate and think not just 100 years in the future like we need to with corporate capitalism, but how do you think 10,000 years in the future when you mm-hmm. think about the effect of some of the things we're doing to the planet today? It's, you know what's interesting about that job is whoever's doing it, you can arrive at a conclusion and just be like, this is the way we're doing it. And there's, there's never going to be any like blowback from that you know if you do you do your job badly even if you can cover it up for a month a year it's going to come back mm-hmm. at you but 
that that's not going to like there's going to be no way that in ten thousand years it was like fuck's sake he was wrong but you'll always know if you really believe that you haven't done it right you always know that at some point in the future you're risking the deaths of yeah potentially it comes down to just speed. being a good person right you have to be an ethical person so it's basically like this mix of university professors and stuff and they sit around in this big committee mm. and they still they still don't have an answer to it the closest thing that people came up with was the panels on the discovery spacecraft do you know about these these golden records so we put some on <coughs> I mean, um the voyager spacecraft for instance voyager one and two now are the furthest things away from the planet they've gone outside of our solar system they're in interstellar, interstellar space and we created these golden plaques and golden records which data inscribed on the like you know how you read a record with all the little grooves yeah yeah the grooves we inscribed data on the grooves of the record we also put on pictures of a human man a human woman we put on we tried to show them again thinking about how could you communicate what language could you create well we said mm. one thing that everybody in the universe has in common is a hydrogen atom. Hydrogen atom is one proton. So they found a way to show one proton through its, the equation for a proton. And then they created the whole language of communication off the back of that one proton equals one. And this is every go. They put music on the disc. They put uh, loads of different stuff to try and communicate who we are to people who not only won't have our frame of reference because of 10,000 years in the future, but they're going to be are from a different planet and they might not even be life in the same way that we are. Yeah. That's a very topic as well. It's, it's like, again, going back to dolphins, you show that to a dolphin and it, because the, there's, there's a chance that the life on another planet is as intelligent as us, or it might just not be. Its intelligence might be as much as a, a mouse's. Infinite. Lost your right? audio. Oh, there you go. What were we saying? Uh, um, infinite, infinite possibilities. The universe is infinite, the scale of the universe. So there must be infinite yeah, life. That's true. So, well, it's theoretically true. So, he, like, there's no the, way, the like, firm, you could show them plaques to a dolphin and it's not going to have any fucking idea what it's about, we think. It is very well, interesting. We've found ways to communicate with dolphins and we found ways to communicate with shrimps. Uh, not shrimps, chimps. Um, we had yeah. that gorilla that we learned to speak sign language. So we found ways to communicate with things that have a completely different frame of reference to us. Yeah. It's, so, yeah. It's, uh, I've heard uh, it be said that like, if even if we could communicate with ants, there would be nothing to say. Because there's nothing, there's nothing they do and we do that's like yeah. even worth discussing. If an ant spoke English and we did, we couldn't talk to it. If it spoke yeah. perfect English. Yeah, because it wouldn't so, be saying anything relatable to what yeah. we do. Things like um, an arrow, the way that we use arrows, it's a very human thing because we use arrows. Mm. We recognize that it points a dog. Sometimes I do that way, you know, when you're pointing at a dog and you're like, go over there, do that. It's like, yeah, of course, the dog has no idea what you're talking about. It doesn't understand yeah. the point. It doesn't get it. It doesn't know to look at the point of your finger. It's a very human thing. Even smiling, so, smiling's, smiling's a human thing that we, we, we have it as a, as a positive uh, yeah. to a chimp. It's, it's taken as a sign of aggression. 
sign of aggression. Absolutely. And dogs, did you see how um, they've, they've proved now that dogs evolved to have eye expressions similar to humans? Really? Not, but not in a way that they are consciously mimicking it, but they've just, it's almost in the same way that um, a lizard can change the color of its skin. The dog replicates the human movement of the eye because humans respond better to it. Yeah, I could see that. So, that yeah, people have got, to, we've got to start thinking outside the box a little bit and recognizing that um, there are certain things that we are so sure that we know and there are certain ways that we're so sure that this is how we should communicate and this is what we should do. We need to recognize that we're always looking at things from our context. And, yeah, which is why I love physics and the whole idea of quantum mechanics and stuff and physics generally. You've totally got to separate yourselves from your context completely. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. so difficult. There's no way that, like, physics isn't taken emotionally. It, you, you never apply in your, you rarely apply in your view of life to physics. You're not like, well, I can't think of an example, but discussing anything past an atom, you can't even apply anything to your, of your life to that. There's nothing comparable because that's a whole different world in itself inside of that. Yeah. What interestingly, when we talk about atoms, is we kind of use space as as a reference sometimes with planets, moons uh, going around planets, and that's that's the biggest thing we fucking know. Talking about the smallest thing that we know, that's how that's how much of a reference, a lack of reference we've got on on the quantum world. I guess. There's a great little program. I'll send you the link. Uh, you could maybe put it in the info for this. You'll have done it before. You know where you can zoom in and it shows you, it's called the scale of the universe. And so it shows you a picture of things. Yeah. And you can zoom in, you can zoom out. Um, yeah, that's good for, for getting your brain that kind of open. You just can't deal with the scale of it. It's, it's like when you're talking about atoms or space, it's like when, when, you know, when someone talks about Apple have a, a trillion dollars, you know, I don't, you know, they're a big company the idea of them being a massive company isn't suddenly then bigger. They're just still the big company because a trillion dollars to you is you can't comprehend that. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of like that with, with the world in some ways is that you look at a planet and then you look at the solar system and then the galaxy and then it just carries on going. You just can't comprehend how fucking big that is. Yeah. I try not to think about it because what do you do? How can, how the hell are you supposed to think about that? Because, yeah, it's, it's going to get you, it's interesting. But the fact that you can't ever, this stresses me out a little bit. You can never, you, we will probably never understand it. You can't arrive to any conclusion about it. It's something that will never be settled. Yeah, what came before the Big Bang, before time existed? How could, how could there be a time when there was no time and yeah. it was forever and for nothing at the same time? That, that, again, is a language that it's just because we don't know it. Maybe the fucking dolphins understand that. They've got it down. But we, it's it's not within our, uh, it just doesn't fit with us to, to be able to comprehend that. It's not complicated, yeah. It's an interesting one. Uh, I think that was like an hour and a half. So okay. off. Good to chat to you. Yeah. So what are you going to, do you want to introduce your series of podcasts to people now? 
Are you going to... No, I'll just a favorite. it. Yeah, yeah, we'll see where it goes. Do you not want to explain eye to eye is? What is eye to eye? Nah, we'll do that in the description, eh? What time is it there? Uh, it's five, right. five past 11, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I'll let you get away then. But yeah, good to chat. Yeah, it was good, that. Nice. Speak to you soon, man.